All right, we are back. We're probably going to move uh, a very prominent obituary from our third segment where we usually do such items into this one because of all the obits we might note of the past, I don't know, many months, perhaps the whole year. That of Vietnamese General Vo Nguyen Yap is one we think worthy of a bit of digression. But I still want to tidy up some follow-up on previous items, such as this one. The pilots of Asiana Flight 214, which crashed in San Francisco in July, as well as their airline, are raising the possibility that a key device that controls the Boeing 777 speed may have malfunctioned. Radio Parallax is skeptical. There, there was some malfunctioning that took place, but uh, we're pretty sure it was a pilot error type malfunction rather than mechanical. We would refer you to our discussion on this very topic with Vladimir Zaravika a few weeks back. In the past week, I found myself south of San Francisco out on the peninsula and noted that the, the astronomical viewing away from city lights was, was not too bad in some locations. In fact, I had my little green laser pointer out and was picking out where the Andromeda galaxy could be found, which is, of course, just above and to the left of the great square of Pegasus. When I chanced to remember probably the best I ever have seen Andromeda, which was out on Ometepe Island in the middle of Lake Nicaragua. There were very few lights around, and boy, you could see that the galaxy really was about the size of the full moon, which is something that's just impossible to appreciate under less optimal viewing conditions. And I have to note that my nostalgia and recalling that wonderful moment in that beautiful lake and stunning island uh, was jarred a bit by the article in The Economist, October 5th, talking about the proposed canal right smack through the middle of Lake Nicaragua. I did take some solace in the title of the article in The Economist, which was, A Man, A Plan, and Little Else. And I would note that uh, that headline is, of course, a play on the famous palindrome, A Man, A Plan, A Canal, Panama, which reads the same frontwards or backwards. There are many people who take great delight in such things, and while not numbered among them, I do like that one. Because it makes just a great caption for Teddy Roosevelt. But to quote from The Economist, Not since the Civil War of the 1980s have so many helicopters been clattering over remote parts of Nicaragua. But now the guys squinting down through the tree canopy are in suits. Lawyers and business consultants from the United States, Australian engineers, British environmental auditors, and even Chinese executives. Their per diems are being paid by Wang Jing, a Chinese businessman whose $40 billion quest is to build a canal from Nicaragua's Atlantic coast to its Pacific one. Noted the magazine, the dream of such a canal, three times as long as the one that cuts through Panama, is centuries old and has made fools of all who ever believed in it. But they note Mr. Wang has already pulled off one remarkable feat. He has persuaded the former revolutionaries in the Sandinista government to put Nicaragua's sovereignty in hock to make the dream come true. So as we report on this program, last June, the Sandinista stuffed National Assembly of Nicaragua rubber-stamped a law granting a 50-year concession, renewable up to 100 years, to Mr. Wang's HDND group. Notes the magazine, hence ERM, a British consultancy, is looking at the environmental and social impact of digging a deep channel through Lake Nicaragua. God, the thought of this just, just, is just creeping me out. 
Thankfully, the piece notes that the economic case is not easy to make. And even if the engineering challenges are too severe, even some supporters of the project say it may be impossible to raise the billions of dollars necessary to go any further. To which we add, we hope so. Pisa also added, as we talked about earlier, that uh, world trade is sluggish, and meanwhile, new routes may be developing through the Arctic, thanks to global warming and all of its economic opportunities. And of course, when it comes to talking about folly involving water, we tend to concentrate on Jerry Brown's effort to uh, suck more water out of the Delta and ship it south. I understand Capital Public Radio is currently doing a series on that. We'll have to look into it and see if maybe... Uh, some of the good people over there will talk to us about what they're finding. For our part, we hope they listen to what Bert Wilson and Dan Bacher have told us on this program in the past. But you know that water's got to be the hot issue in the state of California when you turn to the B, as we did on Wednesday, to note that California's water officials are now getting involved in inspecting pot farms. Piece by Matt Weiser, who's done some excellent reporting on California water issues, notes that California's water quality regulators will soon be inspecting illegal marijuana growing operations in the Central Valley and Sierra Nevada. This reverses an earlier ban which is intended to protect employees. But I guess, you know, the idea of taking water, and instead of fracking with it or building more homes in Moreno Valley, you'd instead grow marijuana, has got people pretty upset. I don't know. The piece quotes Pamela Creedon, Central Valley Regional Water Quality Control Board's Executive officers saying the environmental impacts are significant. If we don't get some kind of control over this, we're going to have some serious damage being done. And there's no doubt that illegal marijuana growing is causing some environmental damage. And I guess in some ways this reflects the dilemma that uh, the cannabis growing represents. The feds don't want anybody to do it. The state is saying, well, there's a place for this kind of operation. But since it's quasi-illegal and in kind of a uh, you know, limbo in many ways, you have to be uh, surreptitious if you're going to go out in the forest and grow these pot farms. Now, if cannabis growing was legal, marijuana growers would be treated like other farmers and in industries that pollute water and habitats and, you know, would be told what to do and how to do it more effectively. Of course, as we've pointed on this program in the past, uh, various logging corporations can go out there and clear-cut vast acreages, which uh, can't have a uh, happy effect on our watersheds. And they seem to get away with it, so I don't know. We'll, we'll continue to follow the story. And a final follow-up item, we talked about um, the anger that exists uh, in the Bay Area over the idea of naming the new span between Oakland and Yerba Buena Island after Willie Brown, which I guess the legislator went ahead and did anyway. We do want to note that we enjoyed our conversation very much with the former Speaker of the Assembly and San Francisco Mayor. But we did note there was a definite anti-Willie Brown sentiment because apparently some of his actions caused the price of that bridge to go up considerably. But in reading about this, we were kind of stunned by the piece in the B about all the names that the various bridges and highways have in the Bay Area that, well, some of which are familiar and some are not. Old hands in the Bay Area, of course, refer to Interstate 880 as the Nimitz, although I understand that uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz himself, after seeing the number of casualties on the highway, once said they should have named it the Hirohito Highway. Anyway, people from the Bay Area know that, uh, of course, the Caldecott Tunnel, which connects Orinda and Berkeley, well, goes by that name, but uh, were you aware that the southbound portion of the Carquinas Bridge is 
actually the Alfred Zampa Bridge, or that the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge is also supposed to be the John F. McCarthy Memorial Bridge, or that the Antioch Bridge is supposed to be the Senator John A. Nedgetley Bridge. Also, the newer northbound span of the Benicia Martinez Bridge is the George Miller Bridge. Not to be confused, of course, with the older southbound span of the Benicia Martinez Bridge, which was the George R. Miller Jr. Bridge, named after Representative Miller's father, a longtime state legislator himself. But at any rate, our favorite name for all the structures in the Bay Area, which were named after people, has to be that of uh, the bridge on Highway 37 north of San Pablo Bay, which is known as Richard Fresh Air Jansen Bridge. Evidently, Jansen was a renowned decoy carver who lived near the bridge. All right, I want to talk about a rather prominent obituary. I think we'll devote most of the remainder of this segment to it. We are noting the passing of General Vo Nguyen Yap. And yes, I did call a local Vietnamese restaurant up to make sure I was pronouncing it correctly. Because the general's last name is spelled G-I-A-P, but it is apparently pronounced Yap. When in Vietnam, which I was for a few days last November, I asked about the general. Actually, I asked when it was that he had died, and my guide surprised me by saying, General Yap is alive. And so he was at age 101. He passed away this week at 102 years of age. And I would like to quote from competing obituaries from first the Los Angeles Times and The Guardian. Noted the Times, an American publication, Bo Nguyen Yap, the communist general widely regarded as one of the military geniuses of the 20th century, who masterminded the defeat of the French and the war against the Americans in Vietnam, has died. Note the phrasing, the defeat of the French and the war against the Americans in Vietnam. Noted The Guardian, a UK publication, General Vo Nguyen Yap, who has died at age 102, was a self-taught soldier who became one of the foremost military commanders of the 20th century. He used his charisma and tactical skills to transform a tiny band of Vietnamese guerrillas into an army that defeated both France and the U.S. Note the difference. In the U.K., they're willing to point out the obvious, which is that General Vo Nguyen Yap defeated the forces of the United States who engaged him in the Vietnam War. We talked a bit about the excellent book by Francis Fitzgerald, Fire in the Lake, which I finally got around to reading last month. Dovetailing with that excellent volume is Daniel Ellsberg's Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, which I'm continuing to plow through. I must say it is an amazing book to anyone who wants to understand U.S. history. And uh, its extensive discussion of Vietnam is a real eye-opener. I did note curiously that Daniel Ellsberg quoted General Yap, but did not name him, as regards the following quote from the L.A. Times. The Times said, He saw the war against the United States as merely an extension of the war against France, and always believed that Washington's resolve would eventually wither, as had Paris's. You can kill ten of my men for every one I kill of yours, he once said to the Americans, repeating, actually, what he'd warned the French more than a decade earlier, but, quote, even at those odds, you will lose and I will win. 
And as time would demonstrate, um, his belief would prove correct. To quote from the Guardian obituary, in 1944, he founded the Armed Propaganda Brigade for the Liberation of Vietnam, gathering together 31 men and three women armed with flintlock rifles. By 1954, he had turned this ragtag group into the Vietnamese People's Army that defeated the French at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. The surrender of French forces after a 55-day siege in this valley in northwest Vietnam was the coda for colonialism in Indochina. Noted the Guardian correctly, as documented by Francis Fitzgerald and Daniel Ellsberg, the victory took Vietnam to the negotiating table, but it did not bring peace. Instead, the Geneva Accords divided the country into the Communist North and U.S.-backed South, setting the stage for another war that would last until the defeat of the U.S. and the Saigon government in 1975. Both these books on Vietnam I read explain in rather intricate detail how it was that at the end of World War II, Ho Chi Minh and his followers had carved out for themselves an independent state in Vietnam. And it was they who were negotiating with to try and bring more territories out from under colonialism. But Ho and his followers were pretty much outmaneuvered by the French and the Americans and the UN into carving Vietnam into two states. And although the French and later the Americans did not recognize it, an awful lot of what was taking place in Vietnam, the effort to reunify the country after it was divided, was a nationalistic movement. Was it inspired by Marxism and communism? Absolutely. In fact, to continue from the Guardian obituary, Vo earned a degree in law at the University of Hanoi and began teaching history. At the time he founded his army, posing at the first swearing-in in a white suit with a Mauser in his belt, he was well-versed in Marx and had read Mao Zedong's writings on guerrilla warfare. He would always deny the obvious influences of Mao and Napoleon, saying, We fought our wars in a Vietnamese way. My only influences were the great strategists of Vietnamese history. It was in 1940 that Yap joined Ho Chi Minh in China. They returned to Vietnam a year later and founded the Viet Minh, which briefly took power in the August Revolution of 1945 when the Vietnamese communists filled the vacuum left by the defeated Japanese forces. Yap began talks with the French on independence, but they were determined to return to Vietnam. And In December of 1946, the Viet Minh began an eight-year war. Poorly armed and trained, the Viet Minh made little headway until after 1949 when Mao had taken control in Beijing. China began sending advisors and supplies to help the Vietnamese. Now, in both obituaries about the general, it was noted that he was willing to accept horrendous losses of life, for which he was coldly unapologetic, saying the number of dead was small compared with the number who died each day of natural causes. It is noted in the obits that his skills lay less in military tactics and more in managing the logistics and politics that were so vital to sustain the war in the South. Yap once wrote, People should not be overawed by the power of modern weapons. It is the value of human beings that in the end will decide victory. An awful lot could be said about this individual. We couldn't possibly do him justice unless we probably devoted an entire show to him. But there is one line that stands out in the Guardian's obituary, which was simply that Yap was the first general to defeat the forces of the United States in a war. By the way, the LA Times obituary, although it couldn't uh, quite own up to the fact that the U.S. De- was defeated in Vietnam, was written by David Lamb. We spoke to Mr. Lamb on this program about his book on Vietnam, 
and would definitely refer you to that, dear listener. He was a most informative guest, as was Larry Berman, who talked about another North Vietnamese general in his book, Perfect Spy. In this case, it was about Pham Van An, who uh, was a leading journalist writing for Time magazine and hanging out with Edward Lansdale and Lou Conine of the CIA and Bill Colby, people that were running the war for our government and giving them advice about how they could best do that, while at the same time he was basically a North Vietnamese general, or at least he would eventually become that. He was he was a spy that earned his general rank because of how valuable he proved to be to the North Vietnamese. Amazing tales, and uh, we hope you, if you didn't hear those uh, interviews the first time they were aired, go back to our archives at radioparallax.com and check them out. Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I am your host, Douglas Everett. 